invite you to come and pray. Okay, our text is John chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 16 through 18. If you have a, a copy of the Scriptures with you, if you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 5. We've discussed that John is different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's different in some ways. Uh, the other three Gospels give a kind of a, a, a sketch of the life of Jesus, kind of a, a historical narrative of the life of Jesus. Whereas John seems to be, he does some of that, but he's more theologically focused. He's making theological statements. He says his whole purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So that's, that's a theological purpose for the book, that he might convince and show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so far, up to chapter 5, we've seen him do this just with a series of encounters and miraculous works. And encounters with people, his mother, first of all, turning water into wine, Nicodemus, Thirdly, the Samaritan woman sitting by the well. And finally, a lame man sitting by a pool of water in Jerusalem. Each one of these, these encounters shows something about the redemptive purpose that John wants us, us all to see in his Gospel. And he seems to use water as this learning metaphor in each one of these cases. With his mother, he turns water into wine. And he shows the inadequacy of the Jewish law to make someone clean. The Old Testament purification jars were the same jars he turned the water into wine in. Showing us that the Old Testament purification really pointed to the new wine of the Gospel. The purification we have in Christ. Then we see Nicodemus, who's being told that he must be born again of water and spirit, symbolizing the purifying work of regeneration in your soul. Thirdly, that the Samaritan woman uh, who's sitting at the well, Jesus tells her that she must drink living water. She needs living water, not the water from that well. And fourthly, this lame man we just read about a few weeks ago, who was sitting by a pool of water, Jesus shows his sovereignty and salvation, and in creation, he heals this man, absolutely heals him. Well, this man went and told the Pharisees that it was Jesus who had healed him. And the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders, come after Jesus at this point. And we're going to talk about that this morning. This is John chapter 5. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It's been preserved for you throughout the ages by the Holy Spirit until this day. Hear this good word. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray for God's blessing at this time. Father, we come to You as we do every week, acknowledging that our hearts are hard, our eyes are blind, our ears are stopped. Lord, any truth that we understand and receive, it's only a gift from You. It's a gift from Your Spirit. We pray that You would help us. Help us, Lord, to receive Your Word 
Help us to honor it. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title is The Deity of Jesus. Remember, this is one of John's purposes is to prove that Jesus, the Son of God, is God, fully God. Well, we see the Jews making a charge against Jesus and then Jesus kind of giving His opening statement of defense. And this is, make, make no bones about it, this is exactly what's happening. Jesus is answering this charge directly as if He's in a legal argument. And we'll talk through that in just a moment. Secondly, we'll look at the evidence, at least one of the, the evidences that Christ gives for His truthfulness and His honor and His rightness in this situation. In the rest of chapter 5, we'll see six or seven other pieces of evidence that He puts forward. We'll talk more about those next week. But what is the charge? What is the charge that the Jews bring against Him? Well, we're told in verses 16 and 18, the Jews are persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders hated Him so much. It's seen in every one of the Gospels. He doesn't obey their version of the law, their version of Sabbath observance. I say that for this reason. Because they had taken this command, this fourth command, and they had added a lot of extra stuff. 39 extra laws they had piled on top of it. Man-made laws. Things that they, they came up with on their own. They thought that if you, you added layers and layers of law upon the law of God, then certainly you would never break that law because you had all these other laws that you must obey for, as well. Of course, Jesus rebukes them for this. These were things that were not found in the Scriptures. What kind of things? Well, carrying anything was forbidden in this extra bit of law, these, these 39 laws that they wrote to kind of supplement the law of God. They also couldn't burn anything, just to give you a flavor of these things. They couldn't extinguish any fire. Hope you don't have a fire in your house on the Sabbath. They were not allowed to write anything or erase anything. They were not allowed to tie a knot. Hope they don't wear shoes. They were not allowed to untie a knot. Maybe what they did is they put their shoes on before the Sabbath and didn't take them on and off until after. We don't know. But you see, these are all extra things to God's Word that aren't actually part of God's Word. So why does this matter? Because Jesus had told the man that He healed, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. He told him to carry his mat home. So the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. And there is some irony in this because the Messiah whom they were seeking had suddenly come to His temple. He had suddenly come to them. And instead of seeing the healing in His wings, they refused and they chose instead to hate Him and focus on their own religious rules. And that's exactly what they were. Just extra religious rules. Because they threatened their power. Jesus threatened their power, rather. So they saw that this healing in the Sabbath was a breaking of the commandments. And in verses 16 and 18, Jesus breaking the commandment. This is the charge. He didn't actually break the commandment. But this was their charge against Him. That healing on the Sabbath was a violation of the Sabbath. Now again, all of the Gospels address this. This is one of the primary charges against Jesus. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the rulers 
against these charges is varied, but he always answers exactly right and true, and his defense always has a specific objective. This defense in John, I believe, is spectacular. And I hope to just open your eyes to see it as well. It's unique. And no wonder that John includes this particular item because it just shows the absolute glory of Jesus, the Son of God, as being God. So what's Jesus' kind of opening argument? His opening rebuttal. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now and I am working. Jesus answered. This word answered in the Greek is a very unique word. It's sometimes translated said, but said is a different word as well. This this word answered in the Greek is rare in the New Testament. It's always used in the context of trials or courtroom proceedings or legal defense. So Jesus answered as if on trial in this way. He's making a public and formal defense of His ministry on the Sabbath. And notice that He doesn't correct their view of the Sabbath, although He could have. He doesn't debate their understanding of the requirements of the Sabbath, which He could have. He he basically takes their their accusation and He lifts it up to a complete another plane of argument. To a divine plane of argument. And His defense is simply to tell them that He's working on the Sabbath as they see work because His Father works on the Sabbath. My Father does it. So I will do it. In verse 18, the Jews are infuriated. They're seeking all the more to kill Him. Not only because He was breaking the Sabbath in their eyes, He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. These are the charges against Him. He's breaking the Sabbath and He's calling God God, uh, equal with Himself. Calling Himself equal with God. The Jews clearly understand the implications of his defense that he's claiming to be equal with God. He claims to be equal with God. Jesus didn't break the moral law. He didn't break the Sabbath. But he was equal with God. He was doing acts of mercy and necessity on the Sabbath, which are allowed for all of God's people. But he was claiming to be equal with God. And this is an amazing and wonderful defense that I hope to to open up for you a little bit more clearly. So what what was clear to them that in that statement, Jesus was calling Himself God, making Himself equal with the Father. That's the piece that I hope to bring out. What is it about my Father is working until now and I am working that infuriated them and made them convinced that He was claiming to be God? Is it just calling God His Father? Well, that's, that's part of it. But there's more background to this that is just wonderful. And here's the background. The Jews had long debated by this time, by the time of Christ, the keeping of the Sabbath. And that's why they came up with these 39 specific prohibitions in addition to the law of God that weren't part of His Word. But they had long debated the keeping of the Sabbath. And He knew that the Jews had been debating this question. What Sabbath keeping looked like for centuries Since the Jews had returned from exile, they'd focused themselves on the law of God to keep the law of God. And Sabbath observance was one of the reasons why they were dispersed through all of the world because they failed to just do this basic thing, this creation commandment to honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. 
So when they returned from exile, of course, they wanted to do better. So they actually had debated whether or not God Himself broke the Sabbath by upholding the universe in His hands on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine? The Jewish rabbis had concluded that, well, it's, it's okay for us to just carry things in our own homes. And it was in their own domain. They could carry something a short distance uh, with very uh, particular exceptions. They could carry things in their own homes. So they deduced from that that because the whole universe belongs to God, that it was okay for God to sustain the universe on the Sabbath day and not be charged with breaking the Sabbath. I mean, the whole argument, of course, just makes your skin crawl. They're judging God and His work by their own understanding. And yet, this is the conclusion that they had come to by the time of Christ. God, on the Sabbath day, because He owns the whole universe, He can do whatever He wants because it's all His home. It's all His domain. So upholding the universe on the Sabbath is just what He's doing in His own house. Just like we would carry trash to the back door of the house on the Sabbath day and not be charged with breaking the Sabbath. So God can do what He wants in His own house. He's not breaking the Sabbath. Because the entire universe is His home. So this is the background to Jesus' answer. So with that in mind, listen to His answer once again. My Father is working until now, and I am working. So part of it is that He's calling God His Father. Sure. But the bigger part of His arguments, of His legal defense, it's not that you've made these 39 rules and they're unbiblical, which they were. And it's not that acts of mercy and necessity are permitted on the Sabbath, which they are. No, his argument is, my father owns the entire universe. So he does whatever he wants in his domain on the Sabbath, and he's not breaking the Sabbath. He's using their own argument. In the same manner, I, as the Son of God, can do whatever I want on the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath. Just as my Father who owns the whole universe is working and not Sabbath-breaking, so am I. Essentially saying that like the Father, I own the universe. This is my domain. This is my house. Remember in chapter 1 of John, he says, Jesus came to His own. And that word is His own just stops there in the Greek. The, the, the translations add His own things, His own people. But the Greek just stops and it, it kind of means to all of his own possession, to his own stuff, his own creation. He came to his own. This is his. So he's saying like the father, he owns the universe. So no wonder the Jews were seeking to kill him. No wonder they accused him all the more of making himself equal with God. And the absolute divinity of Jesus is a primary theme of John. He wants us to see that the Jews noticed this and wanted to kill Him. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. It's part of John's whole argument. This man, Jesus, was God. And Jesus is making the same argument Himself. So what's the evidence that Jesus offers 
for this argument? Well, one of the evidences that Jesus offers is the fact that He is the Son of God. He calls God His Father. My Father. In verses 19-29, through 29, He calls God His Father seven more times. My Father. My Father. This claim of divinity also enraged the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. He calls Himself the Son of God and He calls God His Father over and over and over again. Again, this is part of His legal defense before them at this time, claiming equality with the Father. So let's stop right there for just a moment. There is a... a, I, I call it a heresy. I think it is a heresy. It's growing in evangelical circles. I want you to be aware of it. It's called the eternal subordination of the Son. This is a heresy that claims that Jesus always submits to the Father. Even in heaven, He's still submitting and obeying the Father. Even in glory. That the submission we see in the Gospels of the Son to the Father just reflects all of Jesus' essence and His being. That this is the way He always interacts with the Father in submission and obedience. That this is the permanent state of the Godhead. We need to be very clear about this. This is unbiblical. It must be rejected. It's heresy. The Jews were exactly right. Jesus was making Himself equal to the Father. He was. Because He was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Fully God. He did not give up any of His attributes of divinity when He came to earth. Rather, He put on, He assumed the attributes of man except for sin. So His humanity and His deity are permanently united in His person and He is now glorified at the right hand of the Father in heaven as fully man and fully God. So what do we make of these passages in John and in the other Gospels where Jesus says that He's doing the will of His Father and He only does the will of His Father in these kinds of things. This must all be seen in the light of His incarnate role as the second Adam. The first Adam came and failed. He could not obey God. The second Adam comes and he obeys God perfectly. He did what the first Adam could not do, which is obey the Father perfectly as a man so that he might be lifted up as the perfect sacrifice. Let's look at one example in Gethsemane. Remember in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He also prayed, Lord, if this cup, if it's possible, remove this cup from me but not my will, but thine be done. So did Jesus in His essence want something different than His Father? Was His will different than His Father's? Well, if so, we have a problem. But the answer is no. This is Jesus speaking as a man. Telling His Father. Being fully man, He did not want to die. He did not want to face the wrath of God as a man. And His holy flesh recoiled at the thought of becoming sin. But the request to avoid wrath and the decision later to carry on in obedience was the mind of Jesus the man. And His human will perfectly conforming itself to His divine will in every instance, which it always did in His life. If this were not the case, then Jesus would have another divine will separate from the will of His Father. He would be either a separate God or His nature would be somehow inferior to the Father's. And this cannot be. 
This view must be completely rejected. This view is not only unbiblical, it goes against all of our confessions and creeds. Jesus is truly God. He is very God of very God. Any submission of the Son that you see in John or in any of the Gospels simply reflects Christ's role as the second Adam on earth. The incarnate God-man who was perfectly obedient to His Father all of His life. But make no mistake, Jesus is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably perfect in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, goodness, and truth. He is God. So the Jews were right. Jesus did, did claim to, to be God. This is why they hated Him. He was God. This is probably also why they hated Him. Because their father, Jesus told them, was the devil. Let's look at five points of application, if you will. Five points. We've made one already. Jesus is very God. A very God. Uh, we see uh, what's called an economic subordination of the Son to the Father. Economic meaning how the Godhead interacts with regards to the work of redemption and creation. Uh, the Father is the one sending the Son. The Son agreeing to be sent to save a people who would be given to Him. The three persons and their roles in redemption all have one ultimate goal and it's the same. But they have different roles. We call this the economic subordination or interaction of the Godhead. But there's also an ontological um, understanding of the Godhead. This, this word ontological just means being. It means who they are in their essence. And with this we say that the Father is different from the Son who's different from the Holy Spirit and yet they are one God. The same in essence. The same in substance. Equal in power and in glory. Jesus did leave His glory behind when He came to earth, but He maintained all the attributes of the Godhead. He knew all things. He saw all things. He sustained all things as the God-man. And they wanted to kill Him for it. Second point, He says that God, His Father, is working until now. God is working until now. He's talking about God's providence over the earth. This is the second thing I want you to remember. This is part of Jesus' legal argument is God continues to rule and reign over all the earth. Over everything that happens. Every event in history. Every ruler who has ever been lifted up by God. Everything that happens in your life. Every bird that falls from the sky. Jesus teaches every hair that grows on your head or doesn't grow on your head. Every star that is born in the universe or every galaxy that dies, every electron that makes its orbit, every quark that makes up every electron. The entire universe is sustained and directed by Almighty God. The Father is still working. And were the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit to stop upholding the universe, all the laws of, nation, of the nature would cease to function. I can't imagine what would happen. We would implode, maybe. You need to know that God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing 
all His creatures and all their actions. That's everything. It's important for us to know. You talk about 911 and the great attacks upon our country. This was God's providence. Hurricane Katrina. This was God's providence. COVID. This was part of God's providence. You see corruption in government or all the things about our culture that you despise. This is part of God's providence. Or you're dealing with a difficult sickness or the death of a loved one. This is part of God's providence. Why? Why do difficult things come? Well, actually, the why questions are none of our business. Deuteronomy 29 says that God has secret things that are none of our business, and that's part of His purpose is that we just don't know everything. We need to trust Him. Whether it's God's wrath or His discipline or just an unseen protection or an unseen plan, we may never know why things happen, but we know that all things come from God ultimately, and He's good. And He loves us. One of the great masterpieces of art, uh, some of you might be familiar with Rembrandt's The Night Watch. It was painted in 1642. I love it because most of this painting, and it's, it's a picture of soldiers standing in front of Amsterdam. Uh, it's a really large painting as well, 12 feet by 8 feet or something like that. But in The Night Watch, most of the painting is dark. It's black. It's night. And yet because of the darkness, every piece of light just shines out in its brilliance and its magnificence. It's because of the dark colors that the painting even works. The soldier, soldiers are wearing white. Their faces are illuminated as brilliantly against the dark as their clothing is. And Rembrandt uses these dark strokes of paint to really make the whole painting wonderful and striking and beautiful. So imagine that all of human history is God's painting. And He's just painting a, a beautiful masterpiece. If it's seven, 6,000 years in painting to this point, our little breath of life, you may not see the whole mosaic at all. Except in the Scriptures, we know it's beautiful and it's God's plan. But your piece of this painting might be more of a dark than a bright spot by God's providence. But one thing we can be certain of, whether it's dark paint or bright paint in your life right now, it's all for God's glory and it's all for your good, your ultimate good. All things come from Him and are through Him and are to Him. To His name be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So trust your God. Trust Him. God is still working even today. My Father is still working. He's still running this universe even now. Well, the third point I want you to understand from this particular passage is that these claims of breaking the Sabbath, they're accusing Christ of breaking the Sabbath, are false. Some people would claim that Jesus actually did break the Sabbath over and over and over again. Not just the extra laws that the Pharisees put up, but that Jesus actually broke the moral law of God. He broke the fourth commandment just because He was done with it. God was changing His commandments. Now we have nine, not ten. Well, this is not right. He didn't actually break the Sabbath. 
In Matthew 5, he explained that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot. That's pretty specific. None of the law will pass, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does that mean until all is accomplished? Well, he tells us until heaven and earth pass away. Not one dot or iota from the law will pass away. He's talking about the moral law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Son of God perfectly followed the law and perfectly kept the Sabbath as He did every other law. But much as He did in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not changing the law or modifying the law. He's revealing what the law should actually look like in your life. Murdering isn't just not stabbing someone with a knife. Not murdering is refraining from even anger and angry thoughts toward your neighbors. Not committing adultery is more than just going after your your neighbor's wife or husband. Not committing adultery is actually lust of the heart. So he affirms that the moral principles of all the moral law would be established until the very end of time. Not one commandment would be relaxed in the slightest. So he's telling the, the Pharisees that their wooden understanding of the laws and their extra little laws that they had to add to the laws, all of this was grossly inadequate and insufficient because every one of the commandments is at its heart a spiritual commandment. That's why when people ask me, well, what can I do on the, on the Lord's Day and not break it? Well, the spiritual commandment is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So you ask the Lord, what is the, the, the thing that I can do today to keep this day holy? I'm not going to go through and parse your life and tell you, oh, you can... You can work a puzzle or you can go for a swim. Okay, are you keeping the day holy? Is this day set apart for God? Is what you're doing at this moment keeping the day holy? This is what Christ did. And you can look at what Christ did on this day. Acts of service, acts of mercy, acts of necessity. And you can see how He kept the day holy. But following the commandments of God, all ten commandments, they're all spiritual in nature. And it's more difficult than you can ever imagine, which is why we'll never be able to do it. But it's our joy to, by the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness with God in every way that we can. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to keep this day holy. The Holy Spirit will enable you not to murder and have anger in your heart. You're going to mess up, certainly, but you need to follow Him. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath day. He preserved it, and so should we. Notice too that Jesus didn't rebuke the Pharisees for trying to keep the commandments. At least here He did not. He rebuked them throughout the Gospels for adding to God's law and for loving the law, but not loving God. That was His rebuke. They didn't actually love God. So we obey God's law because He is our Creator, but our, our obedience flows out of a love for God. Paul told us that the love of Christ could, should control us. The love of Christ should control us. 
because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. We die to ourselves when we love God well. He says that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised. The love of Christ may control you today. May this day especially be called a delight. May the Sabbath day be your delight. Again, I encourage you to take home one of the pamphlets I printed out for you. Take that and, and just review that and, and call the Sabbath day a delight. The title of it is Why I Love the Lord's Day. Uh, Robert McChain wrote it uh, in the 1800s. Um, it's still true today. Some of you might be wondering, again, I'm going to linger on this point for just a moment. Pastor, I'm struggling with my spiritual life. I struggle just reading the Word of God. I struggle with my prayer life. Or I don't know why my, my, my family seems to be struggling so much with, with this thing or that thing. Why my, my prayers are so feeble. It may be that you ignore God on the Lord's Day and you're facing a temporal judgment against that disobedience. God's not going to bless a person or a church abundantly who blatantly ignores His commandments. Certainly we don't obey to get blessing, but if you love God, you will strive to learn how to obey His commandments more and more every day. And this is a spiritual command like all the commandments. It's spiritual. And we should call it a delight. We should give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to His name on this day. His commands are given for our good and for His own glory. And I would, I would challenge you the way the prophet Malachi challenged the people of Israel. Just as you cannot outgive God, if you withhold tithes and, and, and you know we're not a church that focuses on giving tithes and we're not going through your budget, and it's, it's, it should be a great joy for you to come and give. But just as you cannot outgive God, you cannot outhonor God. If you begin to strive to honor God on the Lord's Day, maybe you've never done it in your whole life, but if you strive to keep this day holy, set apart for God as the, as the moral principle of this commandment, I believe God will shower His blessings upon your soul and your home and the whole rest of your week. So we've seen that God is very God that God is always working, that Jesus kept the Sabbath, we should keep the Sabbath as well. But fifthly, let's look at this point. There's always rejection involved when you strive hard after God, when you want to keep God's law, when you want to pursue God, when you want to love God well, when you just hold up the name of Christ. Doing everything that you've been doing, all you can do is stand. Standing in Christ, you'll face rejection. Consider, in the time of Christ, there had been 400 years of silence, and then suddenly God came to the earth. He turned water into wine. He healed a crippled boy. Uh, a dying boy was healed. A cripple was made to walk. Bread was made, a few loaves to feed thousands and thousands. And yet Jesus knew that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. He's coming to his own universe. And he would get no welcome there, especially in Israel, by most people. The reaction of the vast majority of people is rejection. And those who 
would follow after Jesus, Jesus should expect the same thing. We see this in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Satan and all of the people that follow Satan are enraged at the church. Enraged and pursuing us. And Jesus said if they treated Him this way, they will treat us this way as well. Matthew 10.25 It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master if they called the head of the house Beelzebub. That was their accusation that Jesus was actually Satan. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So that's the last thing we should remember is that we can expect rejection from the world. Not just standing for Christ, but any effort to pursue Christ in holiness. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be despised. And that's okay because you know you're God. Let me conclude with this. Jesus is truly God. And He's got divine authority to do anything that He does. He's coming again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. He's the King. I would like all of you to be ready for judgment when it comes. When Jesus comes, Matthew 25 tells us what this is going to look like. For those who love Him, the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink, etc. He's saying, you are blessed by My Father and you lived like your life was in service to My Father. But to those on His left, He says, Depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave Me no food. I was thirsty and you gave Me no drink. Etc. In other words, you claim to be Mine maybe, but your life was no different than the world's. You didn't act like you loved Me at all. In, an, in essence, your, your life showed that you really just loved yourself. A true Christian, his life will be evidence of his faith. And those who aren't in Christ, their lives are evidence that they're not in faith. Certainly our works aren't saving us. We all realize that. But there will be fruit. Fruit that's seen. So if you recognize today that you actually do live primarily for yourself and not for God, if, if the fruit of your life is more selfishness and pride, and not the fruit of the Spirit, then I would warn you today to, to shake yourself, to strengthen your weak knees, and to embrace the Gospel as I offer it to you today. Everyone within the sound of my voice should know that you cannot have Jesus as your Savior unless you've also honored Him as your Lord and your Master. And without Jesus, you're hopeless. You're hopelessly lost and dead in sin destined for, for hell because you have sinned greatly against a holy God. You've all sinned so much against the holiness of God. And if you're lost, you may not have ever seen that. But Jesus did come to earth and live the perfect life and died the perfect sacrifice in your place. And He rose from the dead on the third day. And then He said that everyone who comes to Him in faith would truly be saved and would have eternal life. So if you do not have this faith today, then come to Him today and repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus, dear friend. Run to Jesus. It's not too late. But if you have already come to faith in Christ, if you are saved, then you know 
the great grace that is yours. You know that there's nothing that you have done to deserve this wonderful grace that God has shown to you in giving you faith in Christ. And if you even have the smallest glimmer, the smallest spark of faith in Christ, that's saving faith. And praise God. It's not the quantity of your faith that's important for salvation. It's the quality of your faith. And that means faith in Christ. It's knowing that I can do nothing because Christ had to do everything and I love Him and I believe it. In our lives, we won't have the perfect knowledge of the Father that Jesus did. But we do know the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We know it because this Word comes alive to those who are Christ's. If you know the Son of God, you can face anything with courage. If you know the Son of God, you can endure hardship with, with grace and all kinds of pain and suffering. You can endure it. If you know the Son of God, you can fight the good fight of the faith and you can kill your sin and run to your Savior. If you know the Son of God, you can have joy even in tribulation and the great sorrow. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? If He didn't withhold even His only Son, how much more will He do for His own beloved children whom He has adopted and brought into His own family? The Pharisees rejected God. They said, this is not God. We reject Him completely. But we don't reject Him. We love Him. And those of His children who will cry out to Him, He will answer. Because our God is mighty to save. And He loves His own. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to You now as Your own children. We thank You that You have given us Your Word. We thank You that You have called us to Yourself. We thank You that we can understand the truth of Your Word. As the Pharisees could not, their eyes were blinded by hatred. Their eyes were blinded by their father, the devil. But Lord, we thank You that You've given us eyes to see Jesus clearly. That You've given us eyes to see the accusations against Him. That they were absolutely right in that He was truly God and absolutely wrong that He broke any of Your moral law. Lord, we pray that You would help us to live as befit children of God who love You, who adore You, who praise You, who honor You, and who tremble at Your name. Bless this day of worship. Bless this last Lord's Day of 2023. And be with us and renew us for your own glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.